Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, uh, just Klaus, not to be confused with Dr. Faust, here alone, about to do a quick episode on Athanasius of Alexandria. I guess I wanted to spare Travis the sort of vagaries of this kind of, um, I won't say random, but this sort of loosely associative series of ideas that came to me as I was teaching Athanasius for some wonderful undergrad students at Vassar College this past week. Um, We've talked about Athanasius before as the Bishop of Alexandria, as the author of the life of Anthony, um, when we were talking about uh, monastic demonology a few episodes back, Anthony didn't write his own story. Athanasius is the one who writes the most famous treatment of it, though we did talk about how Anthony seems to have written some letters that had kind of a different take than than Athanasius's. But yeah, so we, we've touched on him there. I, I remember saying with Travis that he's one of these sort of power politician theologians. Uh, he's a bishop during the time that Rome goes Christian via the conversion of Constantine when Athanasius starts out as a young person. Some estimates have there being about 10% of the Roman Empire as as Christian, um, and by midlife, the end of his life, it's uh, an accepted and on the path to becoming an official religion of the empire. So that's quite a shift. And so the power politics of Athanasius's career, which basically involve him being driven or exiled from Alexandria by his theological opponents, the Arians, about whom we spoke last time when we were sort of explaining how the Cappadocian fathers helped figure out a Nicene solution to the crisis and debate over the Trinity. Uh, Athanasius was a big proponent of that Nicene settlement. He was there, um, if I'm getting that right, at the Council of Nicaea, um, serving as an assistant. He wasn't quite bishop yet at that time. Athanasius is this uh, partisan political creature. If we were going to compare the the uh, fight between Nicene Christians and Arians to something in the present, politically, uh, Athanasius would be like the Cold War liberal cold warrior par excellence against the uh, red menace of the Arians. Um, so yeah, that's sort of that's the communism versus uh, Cold War liberalism analogy that I'd make. Uh, he's the one who coins the term Arians. He's the one who sort of partakes or is an, an innovator in this uh, venerated Christian tradition of taking the name of a person you disagree with and then turning that into a whole school of thought, which you can define and then polemicize against and sort of make up wild claims about at your leisure. Uh, so Athanasius was big on that. Um, he's the one who coins that term Arian. Both Athanasius and Arius are from Alexandria. That didn't make them into friends by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and eventually Athanasius will become the bishop 
of Alexandria, and he would be exiled by partisans of Arius, who at one point or the other have a lot of power in the Roman Empire. Uh, the what would seem to be from the position of the Nicene consortium of the inevitability of the triumph of what they saw as orthodoxy was by no means assured and there were many close calls in which uh arian christianity could have triumphed via one roman emperor or the other or then by like the goths and the visigoths who were themselves arian christians and then slowly subjugated the roman empire and broke it up and took it over um so just to keep that in mind um so other things that Athanasius is known for is coming up with a pretty dead-on list of the 27 books of the New Testament that prefigures the modern canon of the Bible pretty accurately. This list was just for Alexandria and his his uh, Episcopal See, um, but yeah, it would be very influential or at least uh, ahead of its time in terms of setting that canon. Uh, the thing I was working on with Athanasius this week was a text he wrote as a like a 20-year-old. It's on the Incarnation, and uh, he does a lot in this text to explain why God has to become a human being or to take on human flesh. And a really important aspect of the Incarnation and the rationale for the Incarnation for Athanasius is the atonement um, the ways in which Jesus through life and death is salvific for human beings. And we talked about this last episode with the whole fish hook thing uh, and the Christus Victor paradigm of atonement theology that we get, you know, from Irenaeus on down. Athanasius is also partaking of that tradition. We don't get the fish hook so much. But we do have the devil entering into the fray when it comes to thinking about why Jesus had to die the way that he did. So for uh, Athanasius, there are these questions like, why doesn't Jesus just die in a private way? Why doesn't Jesus just get sick and die? Why does it have to be in this really grisly, public, embarrassing way? And this is where the devil comes in. It also has to do, I think, with the kind of almost masculinist flexing of the power political mode in which Athanasius is describing Jesus as like a powerful wrestler who isn't going to pick his opponent for fear that people might suspect that he's trying to pick the weaker opponent. And by that, I guess he means like sickness. The sickness thing is like, oh, well, Jesus is a perfect human being, uh, perfectly sound, so he can't succumb to sickness in that way he can't die in that way so it has to be a violent attack and something i've been picking up on lately is how obsessed patristic theologians are with irony Uh, jesus has to become a human being in order to be killed by other human beings who he's trying to save so anyway he's talking about the crucifixion and why that had to be as grisly and as violent and as in embarrassing as it would have been. And so I'm just going to read a quick section from uh, paragraph 25 of On the Incarnation that gets us into some of this devil territory. But if any honest Christian wants to know why he suffered death on the cross and not in some other way, we answer thus. In no other way was it expedient for us. Indeed, the Lord, indeed, the Lord offered for our sakes the one death that was supremely good. 
He had come to bear the curse that lay on us, and how could he become a curse otherwise than by accepting the accursed death? And that death is the cross, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Again, the death of the Lord is the ransom of all, and by it the middle wall partition is broken down and the call of the Gentiles comes about. How could he have called us if he had not been crucified? For it is only on the cross that a man dies with arms outstretched. Here again we see the fitness of his death and of those outstretched arms. It was that he might draw his ancient people with the one and the Gentiles with the other and join both together in himself. Even so, he foretold the manner of his redeeming death. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. From John 12. Again, the air is the sphere of the devil, the enemy of our race, who, having fallen from heaven, endeavors with the other evil spirits who shared in his disobedience, both to keep souls from the truth and to hinder the progress of those who are trying to follow it. The apostle refers to this when he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. But the Lord came to overthrow the devil and to purify the air and to make a way for us up to heaven, as the apostle says, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. This had to be done through death, and by what other kind of death could it be done, save by a death in the air, that is, on the cross? Here again, you see how right and natural it was that the Lord should suffer thus, for being thus lifted up, he cleansed the air from all the evil influences of the enemy. I beheld Satan as lightning falling, he says, and thus he reopened the road to heaven, saying again, Lift up your gates, O ye princes, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. For it was not the word himself who needed an opening to the gates, he being Lord of all, nor was any of his works close to that of their maker. No, it was we who needed it, we whom he himself bore in his own body, that body which he first offered to death on behalf of all, and then made it through and then made through it a path to heaven. So yeah, a lot. Um, the outstretched arms sort of welcoming Jews and Gentiles. Interesting motif. Of course, most important for our purposes is commenting on the ways in which being like hefted up on the cross is supposed to be this invasion of the devil's territory, the air. And this is something, I think it was sort of on the fringes of our origin episode, and it's going to come back again when we talk about uh, medieval scholasticism and scholastic demonology. But there was a great debate as to whether the demons and the devil were trapped in hell or whether they were... Um, operating in different levels of the atmosphere. And this was important because it also goes back to this idea of how we consider the, the body of the demons. And an influential way of explaining this is that the, the demons do have bodies. Again, this whole debate about like demons become are like these heavenly beings that become materialized through their fall. And yet they don't seem to have materiality in the same way as human beings do. And so demons have these airy bodies. And so they have these airy bodies and then so they, they dwell in the gloomy air. And I think there's I think there's precedent for this in like the book of Enoch, if I'm looking at that correctly. Um, it's so like to, to put it simply, um, there is 
ambiguity about where the devil lives, where the devil operates. Um, part of that goes back to Revelation because the devil gets thrown into the lake of fire and crawls out of the pit at different parts. And so the devil isn't just statically in hell. Um, in in these ancient Christian sources, New Testament sources, rather, um, it isn't quite like Dante where the devil's like just frozen there. And so, yeah, like where is the devil? The devil, Athanasius says, is the prince of the air. And that's a Pauline phrase, the, this sort of prince of the spirits of the air. And so uh, Athanasius is seeing symbolically, almost sacramentally enacted how Jesus being erect in the air, hung on a cross, is this, I don't know, like cleansing gesture. It might also be the place, like maybe we think of the Leviathan as a giant fish in the water, but maybe it's like the the giant Leviathan is jumping out of the water into the air and is hanging in the air like a giant orca at, at like the now banned sea world. And that's where Jesus meets him to be gobbled up, but Jesus is the hook. You know, I'm, I'm sort of still free associating from, from last episode. Um, but yeah, this idea of, of the, the devil as the prince of the air is, is like sort of motivating Athanasius's vision of Christ confronting the devil there and clearing a path, this path, because there needs to be a path because if the demons are occupying and controlling not only the world, but like the atmosphere and uh, the jet stream and stuff. There has to be a uh, cleansing and a path broken from the earth back up to heaven. If we sort of think about the world in this sort of set of concentric circles, the sort of Ptolemaic cosmology going upward into the upper echelons of existence, then this sacramental symbol of Jesus's crucifixion clearing a path is is really crucial for for uh figuring that okay the other thing apart from Jesus beating the devil in an air war uh, that stood out to me as I was reading on the incarnation for probably like the 15th time in my life um was the way that Athanasius keeps referring to the body of Jesus as his bodily instrument, um, which to me is like a sort of a very strange phrase. The original is somatikon organon, something that, that that the word rules over as a lord and master. But yeah, the somatikon organon. Uh, and I've been thinking, gosh, for years now about ideas of instrumentality and what it means to be an instrument in Christian theology. And to see Athanasius talking about the flesh of the incarnation as an instrument was very striking to me uh, because for starters, instrumentality is something that applies to a whole range of hierarchies uh, from the angels on down to the priesthood and the, the ecclesial hierarchy but also to the demons and the devil. If you think back to, to Job or to Enoch, the Watcher story and um, Jubilees, how 
demons are instruments of temptation and punishment, that they are evil, but they also work for God. There's like this whole continuum of instruments that serve God. And I had never thought about the body of Christ as itself this instrument, as being a kind of instrument. I I guess I thought of it as being something distinct or being holier in a way from the point of view of these these theologians but to see Athanasius say this like very baldly bluntly uh, that Jesus's body is an instrument that he dominates that he uses to uh, you know an instrument for salvation but still that there's something kind of cold about that that I was picking up on. And one of the ways I've been thinking about instrumentality is uh, through the philosophy of Giorgio Agamben, who writes this book, Opus Dei, about the priesthood and the way in which priests were understood in the sort of early theory of the church to be these animate instruments of divine force and power. Um, And it reminded me of that, that, that there's something almost artificial about it that there's like that the the body of of christ is almost like an app or a tool like there's there's something like kind of very sort of disorienting about that this ties into something i'm teaching about right now because there's a lot of debate we talked about debates about the trinity there's a lot of debates about how to think of jesus as both god and a human being um, and someone who really looked up to Athanasius, but was declared a heretic in a way Athanasius is not remembered as a heretic, um, was this Lebanese theologian, Apollinaris. And Apollinaris's idea was that basically, uh, Jesus as the incarnation was like God, the word wearing a human costume, like the big bug in men in black. Um, that's, that's what I think of. Uh, and, um, this was denied because it seemed to be really belittling the 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 fact that God becomes a human being. If we sort of look at like the Gospel of John, like the Word becomes flesh, it's sort of saying like, well, the Word became flesh, but like only kinda, only sorta. It's like a tr- it's like a like a, a disguise or an optical illusion. Athanasius isn't saying that, but you could see where emphasizing the instrumentality of the body rather than the personhood that comes with being embodied as a human being could lead someone to draw the kind of stark conclusions that Apollonaris did draw. Another thing that this reminded me, and I mentioned this before, like the, the sort of the way instrumentality works on a continuum. So we go from, in this case, the body of the incarnation to the devil. This is something that gets developed later. Uh, Agamben cites this uh, French scholastic theologian, Peter, Peter of Poitiers, who saw, who like argued these really intense questions like, how should we think of the Holy Spirit actually operating through the devil? How do we think about evil, like demons being guided and working for God, even though they're evil? And Peter is struggling to say, okay, these, these evil beings are the instruments of divine providence and God's plan for history and stuff. But they're also evil. So how do we think about that? And so Peter's solution is to say that the devil and the demons do the thing that God wants, but they do it in the wrong way. They, they're still instruments of God, but they're instruments who are, who are 
being used by God, but are still morally responsible because they are acting from bad bad motives. But yeah, just to just to see how encompassing the the way instrumentality is working through Christian ideas of salvation and economy and history was just just kind of blew me away. And um, it's more a more abstract connection, but it's just just to just to say it again, like to put the body, the fact that Jesus has a body in the same sort of ontological paradigm as the devil, as the servant of God's will, like both the devil and the body almost become, I don't want to say like there's an equal sign, but there's a sort of, there's an analogy of function there that, that um, is really, I mean, I don't want to, disturbing makes it sound like it's, I'm being like overly pious, but it's just, it's wild. <laughs> it's like, it, it really takes me back. And we saw this idea last episode with how the Cappadocian fathers, uh, you know, Gregory was like, oh, well, there is some goodness in the devil and the devil does work for God's purposes. And ultimately the devil will be rehabilitated. And this is maybe what Gregory, uh, what Gregory of Nyssa thinks. So maybe this is what, maybe what Origen thought um, to go back another episode or two. Um, the other Cappadocians saw the demons bowing down to Jesus as just meaning that they would uh, be good torturers and work for <laughs> work to punish sinners for for forever, but again, uh, instrumentality, the instrumentality operating through the demons and the devils, instrumentality of Christ's body. And to be fair to Athanasius, I don't see him so much in this material as asserting in the same breath that. Jesus's body and the demons are tools. Like he, there isn't, there isn't a focus on the demons quite as, as tools. Like there's the devil to be beaten. Uh, you know, he's an enemy to be triumphed over in the air. Um, in another text I'll be talking about in a minute in Antony, the demons and the devils are to be beaten in mortal combat. So he doesn't totally play up their instrumentality in the way that, that the Cappadocians would, or Peter Poitier would, or, or, or a whole range of, of other theologies would. He, his focus on instrumentality is Jesus's body from, when I, from what I've been talking about. What I wanna do now is talk a little bit more about how the instrumental focus on Jesus's body has, has important implications for then how, how Athanasius talks about Antony and Antony's trials as a monk and Antony's development as a spiritual leader. So I've been talking about how Athanasius thinks of Jesus's body as an instrument for the divine purpose uh, and my own sort of pious astonishment at the straightforward invocation of instrumentality to explain what the body is there for. Uh, I wanted to be a little bit more specific about how this instrument works because Athanasius is specific. So, uh, for example, Athanasius responds to this question that he poses to himself as to why, after the crucifixion, Jesus has to be 
in the tomb for three days uh, before resurrecting or why on the third day he has to be resurrected. And Athanasius sees the fact that Jesus doesn't decompose during those three days as being of great importance, uh, that Jesus's body is not falling apart, that Jesus's body is strong and intact as of enormous consequence for the salvation of the human race um, because it means that there's going to be this, this solid, unified organization that's going to follow this solid, organized, compact savior uh, up the, the airy highway through heaven uh, past the demons. Three days is also important because it's enough time where people still remember that this happened. If, if, if it was longer than three days, I guess the miracle of the corpse not becoming putrid would be even more impressive. But Athanasius reasons, people may have forgotten about Jesus by then <laughs> if he had waited too long. Um, he would have been old news. Um, so yeah, that's just one example. But one of the things that it draws out is how Athanasius is interested in Jesus's masculinity and in the perfection of his body as a key site of theological insight. And this interest in the body of sacred beings and people gets picked up in Athanasius's biography of Antony, which um, has been called like the, the greatest bestseller of the late ancient Christian world. It's been called the second most influential book in Christianity to the Bible, um, which... Uh, Dermot McCulloch, the historian, says maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but is like operating in the right order of magnitude in terms of how influential the life of Anthony was. I mean, it inspired Saint Augustine. If you have you read the Confessions, like Anthony's story is like this firestorm of publicity and legend, uh, and Athanasius is this um, page-turning theological writer. And so uh, when Antony is, in the early part of the book, he spends a lot of time being terrorized by demons. Um, that's why we're talking about it in this show. He, he uh, locks himself in abandoned tombs and the demons come in. We talked about this last time. They're like, they're like lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and stuff. And they're, they're snarling and his body is in pain. And he's, he's just like writhing in agony. And eventually he just keeps invoking uh, God's supreme power and the demons like sort of slouch off because they can't really hurt him. Uh, and Anthony's like lying there numb, exhausted, and God starts talking to him and God's like, good job. And Anthony's like, well, you were there the whole time. Why didn't you help me? And God's like, well, I did help you. That's why you're still standing and not like sinning or dead or something. And God, then God's like, I'm going to make you famous. <laughs> but so he does things like that. He's in tombs. He does these really extreme ascetic feats. This is what Athanasius writes. Nearly 20 years he spent in this manner, pursuing the ascetic life by himself, not venturing out and only occasionally being seen by anyone. After this, when many possessed the desire and will to emulate his asceticism, and some of his friends came and tore down and forcibly removed the fortress door. He's like camping out in an abandoned fort. Cool. Antony came forth as though from a shrine, having been led into divine mysteries and inspired by God. 
This was the first time he appeared from the fortress for those who came out to him. And when they beheld him, they were amazed to see that his body had maintained its former condition, neither fat from lack of exercise, nor emaciated from fasting and combat with demons, but was just as they had known him prior to his withdrawal. The state of his soul was one of purity, for it was not constricted by grief, nor relaxed by pleasure, nor affected by either laughing or dejection. So we get this image of like this perfectly trained body, the ascetic, the monk, is compared to a spiritual athlete, but also like just a straight up athlete. Uh, and again, we sort of see like the body is being like tuned up, sharpened, being treated as a as an instrument, a valuable one, but an instrument to be to be uh, put through its paces and to be engineered into its technical virtuosity. And this matches a soul that is neither grief-stricken nor ridden with pleasure, um, perfect balance. And Peter Brown writes about how the ancient monks were trying to get back to the state of total equilibrium in almost like an economic and uh, a sort of mechanical sense. The, the idea was to get to a point in which the body would return to an Edenic state and would be able to function without food and would be able to sort of be like the self-perpetually running engine. Um, and that's sort of what we see going on with like this well-trained physique and this total uh, apathy has like a negative connotation. And, but like this in, in, in Greek, I guess the, the sort of the word it's, it's based on has more of a, a positive connotation in these monastic uh, discourses. And so the body is perfectly functional. The soul is perfectly balanced, um, all from hanging out in an abandoned fortress and kicking the shit out of demons. Um, so yeah, just to see that continuity where Jesus's body is an instrument, but it's like, it's like an instrument in the way like an Olympic gymnast body is being used to perform these routines and these incredible feats of strength and agility. Um, and that carries over to Antony too. And so this is uh, what, Ant what, what, what Athanasius sees as like as theosis, the process by which people are becoming God through the path that the incarnation has made um, for them. The other thing I wanted to talk about from the life of Antony was something we talked about before, which is like this dramatic scene, this confrontation between Antony at the start of his sojourn in the, the wilderness of Egypt, when he's confronted by the devil um, after sort of these kind of ham-fisted attempts to tempt Antony um, with money, the devil then appears as a woman, but he's not able to seduce Antony. Um, and then in chapter or paragraph six, I guess chapter six, uh, we get the point of view of the devil and it's like the dragon was there and the dragon sort of like gnashing its teeth and it's like, ah, oh, it hasn't, nothing's worked yet. Nothing's worked yet. And so then the dragon, you know, Satan appears as a small black boy who confronts Antony and, and boasts about how he's laid 
many an ascetic low as the spirit of fornication and how even the most determined monks have been seduced and tempted and fallen away from the the rigorous practical life. And one of the interpretations that we, we've looked at was um, by David Brackey and Brackey points out the kind of the way in which um, there's like this sexualization of blackness, this hypersexualization of blackness, but also this um, representation of same-sex desire in in the in the fact that the spirit of fornication is this this um, black youth. Um, I didn't have access to the book when we did that episode because I guess that's that's life, and sometimes interlibrary loan takes too long. Um, I recently did get another key book about race and early Christianity by Gail Byron, uh, Symbolic Blackness and Ethnic Difference in Early Christian Literature. And she has a different perspective on the confrontation between the devil and Athanasius that I wanted to share because I, I thought it was it was really insightful. Um, like Bracky does later, uh, Byron is attuned to the ways in which blackness is the signifier of military and political rivalry uh, between sub-Saharan African nations and kingdoms with against uh, Egyptian, Greek, and then Roman power structures. Um, and so uh, the part of the point in having a confrontation between Antony, written by Athanasius, a bishop, and being a bishop in this time in the fourth century meant being a power player in the Roman Empire, was a way to say being a Christian also meant being someone who's also spiritually enacting these battles against um, dangerous foreigners at the frontiers of empires. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, Byron doesn't see the confrontation between the black boy as a spirit of fornication in Antony in quite as like sort of an eroticized way as Bracky. Bracky thinks of it as being like this crisis of desire that then gets desire rechanneled to the the monk's monastic um, master, the person who's going to show them the ropes, and then to the community. Um, for Byron, the point is more that the appearance of the black boy is one that shows that Anthony is going to triumph because the person is small. The person is, is weak. It's like this, it's like the way you go from having this, like the dragon smog. It's like, it's as if the dragon smog became a hobbit. Right. And, and for Byron, it's that, it's the way that, that, that sort of um, slightness and the way that Antony can kind of almost loom over the spirit of fornication is a sign of his triumph in this combat. Of course, that can have also a sexual connotation, and I don't want to be um, like too dense about that. Um, but I do think that rather than there, there is a way to see this, like rather than just being all about um, the erotic and the exotic, it's also about um, this power imbalance, and also about showing the the possibility for winning, the, the possibility that the aesthetic winning the fight against desire um, through this, like the, the, the frame of this, of this uh, black spirit of fornication.
of course, um, Byron does also, you know, show how blackness is being treated in a sexualized way, in a way that is supposed to evoke a kind of foreign ethnicity. Um, so all those things are still there. But I do think that um, when you read the passage, it's it's all about the kind of inevitability of Athanasius's victory. And it's kind of funny after that to sort of get back into the instrument theme. Um, after that episode happens, Athanasius writes, this was Anthony's first contest, contest against the devil, or rather this was in Anthony, the success of the savior. Again, it's, it's not Anthony, but Anthony's, Anthony's soul, Anthony's body is a vehicle, an instrument for a larger cosmological, spiritual confrontation between good and evil. Yeah. But anyway, um, I'm going to wrap up, I think, right now. Thank you all for for tuning in, supporting the podcast, uh, doing all the things uh, short of violent sacrificial rituals that we need to keep uh, the podcast going. But yeah, so happy to be here with you um, and look forward to joining you again with Travis very soon. We're coming up on, as my, as my children keep reminding me, we're coming up on Halloween season. So we're looking forward to doing our yearly tradition of a devil-themed horror movie in celebration of Halloween. Uh, so we have that to look forward to. We have some episodes on St. Augustine to look forward to as we sort of start to move towards closing out this season of the podcast. Uh, so yeah, thanks and see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.